No, most people just can't get enough of a good thing But some people just can't get enough They don't even wonder how the other half lives They wonder how their half lives There's people who will take all that they can get And charge what the market will bear There's people who will take all that they can get And pay what the market will charge Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 12th day of May, 2008. I'd like to remind my listeners that all of the documentation backing up all of the statements made in today's episode can be garnered from my website, CorbettReport.com. I'd like to commend all of the listeners who defied direct orders from headquarters last week and still donated to the CorbettReport.com chip-in event on the CorbettReport.com homepage. This week, in just three days, we were able to meet our $100 fundraising goal for a new microphone for the website. With the support of those listeners who donated to the chip-in event, we will now be able to buy a professional studio-quality microphone and a pop filter to ensure increased audio quality in our future productions. Once again, my heartfelt thank you to those listeners who contributed. Our next chip-in event has already started. We're currently raising $100 to upgrade our telephone to increase the quality of our telephone interviews. We had a very exciting interview this week with Mr. Brian McLean, formerly a host of a blog talk radio program. But unfortunately, the quality of the audio delivered through our current telephone system leaves a lot to be desired. This is unfortunate because we have some great interviews scheduled for the upcoming weeks, which will go ahead regardless of whether or not we can raise the funds for the new telephone. But it would be nice to have clear, crisp audio quality for all of our interviews in the future. Also, please remember to check out our YouTube channel every Wednesday for new editions of our YouTube documentary series. This week we managed to put out not one but two YouTube documentaries. One about Donald Rumsfeld and his whereabouts on 9-11. And the second, highlighting our interview with Brian McLean and his startling revelations about the censorship going on at Blog Talk Radio over 9-11. And that brings us to today's real news. Today's first news story comes from CorbettReport.com, 10th of May 2008, Blog Talk Radio Censoring 9-11 Truth. Blog Talk Radio is an internet-based social broadcaster that allows users to set up and host their own radio talk show with nothing more than a phone and an internet connection, as long as they don't question the government. As Brian McLean found out, Daring to bring up questions about the government's official 9-11 fairy tale will not be tolerated by the thought police at Blog Talk Radio. Until recently, 
He was host of the Angry Scotsman program hosted on the Blog Talk Radio site. His program was quickly cancelled, however, and his archive of previous episodes purged from the web after the BTR censors found out about his plan to host an episode dedicated to questioning the official 9-11 story. I was contacted rather abruptly yesterday by a member of the Blog Talk Radio staff about that show, McLean told the Corbett Report in an interview Thursday. He told me, We've looked over your profile, and we've listened to your other episodes, and we don't want this type of material to be distributed out of Blog Talk Radio. Our second story this week comes from Infowars.net, Friday, 9th of May 2008. State says hundreds of 9-11 rescue workers now dead, admits undercount. New York State health officials have released statistics indicating that 360 9-11 rescue workers have since died, but have also admitted that there is an overall undercount. The New York Daily News reports that of those deaths, 154 have been explained, and 80 have died of various forms of cancer, mostly impacting the lungs and digestive system, while others were related to blood cancers and heart and circulatory diseases. It's the tip of the iceberg, said David Warby, who's representing 10,000 workers, 600 with cancer, who say they got sick after working on rescue and recovery efforts. These statistics bear out how toxic that site was, Warby said. Our final story this week comes from the Daily Mail, 9th of May 2008. The real brain drain. Modern technology, including violent video games, is changing the way our brains work, says neuroscientist. What prompted me to write my book is that the pace of change in the outside environment and in the development of new technologies has increased dramatically. This will affect our brains over the next 100 years in ways we might never have imagined. Our brains are under the influence of an ever-expanding world of new technology, multi-channel television, video games, MP3 players, the internet, wireless networks, Bluetooth links, the list goes on and on. But our modern brains are also having to adapt to other 21st century intrusions, some of which, such as prescribed drugs like Ritalin and Prozac, are supposed to be of benefit, and some of which such as widely available illegal drugs like cannabis and heroin, are not. Electronic devices and pharmaceutical drugs all have an impact on the microcellular structure and complex biochemistry of our brains. And that, in turn, affects our personality, our behavior, and our characteristics. In short, the modern world could well be altering our human identity. The rapidly escalating crisis of food availability around the world has reached emergency proportions. We estimate that a doubling of of food prices over the last three years could potentially push 100 million people in low-income countries deeper into poverty. All what has been done can be destroyed very rapidly by the crisis coming from the increase in, in, in food prices. We've had riots in Haiti that ended in some violence, Egypt, parts of Africa. Um, they're really you know, scattered around the world, but obviously in developing countries where you have lots of um, poor consumers, particularly countries that have recently urbanized. For the first year this year, we saw a decline in, in uh, worldwide food production, and that's quite uh, striking. Simply, there is not enough land for the amount of crops that people want to consume, whether it by food or whether it by fuel. And the only way of actually rationing demand, unfortunately, is price. 
Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 41 of the Corbett Report. Food is a weapon. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last few months, you would be well aware that we are currently going through a food shortage of crisis proportions. Just a flavor of the immensity of this global food crisis can be garnered from headlines from the last few days, such as this one from Associated Press yesterday. North Korea urges more green production as food crisis grows. Or this article from allafrica.com from 7th of May 2008. Kenya. Food shortages persist even as rains fall in northeast. Numerous reasons have been given to us for this food crisis by the various talking heads who we rely on more and more to tell us how to think, feel, and act about any given news issue. These ideas range from speculation on the food futures commodity trading markets, with investors rushing out of the bursting housing bubble, straight into the commodity markets where they can pump in the rest of their Federal Reserve funny money which is printed out of nothing, thus driving up food prices. Another reason for the food crisis that's been much touted is the conversion of more and more arable farming land into use for production of biofuel crops, a phenomenon that's taking place because of the global warming hype which has enraptured the sheeple. Climactic variability itself has been given as one of the reasons for the crisis, with cooler and longer winters limiting the farming season and thus reducing the amount of crops harvested year on year. While all of these things certainly are factors in the food crisis which we are currently facing, there is perhaps an even more ominous tale to be told here, and that is that, for some people, this food crisis, the starvation it will bring about, and the eventual rationing of the global food supply by a UN-administered global food agency is actually a good thing. Let's turn back to that montage of news clips with which we opened this segment to examine one particularly enlightening comment by John Clemo of UBS. Simply, there is not enough land for the amount of crops that people want to consume, whether it by food or whether it by fuel. And the only way of actually rationing demand, unfortunately, is price. Hmm, there is not enough land, and humans are incapable of producing enough food to feed the mass of humanity. Yeah, that's right. It sounds about right. It sounds like something that I've heard before. Oh, yeah. The power of population is indefinitely greater than the power in the earth to produce subsistence for man. Population, when unchecked, increases in a geometrical ratio. Subsistence increases only in an arithmetical ratio. A slight acquaintance with numbers will show the immensity of the first power in comparison of the second. By that law of our nature which makes food necessary to the life of man, the effects of these two unequal powers must be kept equal. This implies a strong and constantly operating check on population from the difficulty of subsistence. This difficulty must fall somewhere and must necessarily be severely felt by a large portion of mankind. That, of course, comes from Thomas Malthus and his Essay on Population. Again, please go to CorbettReport.com and check the documentation list. At the current time index, you'll find that document that you can read in its entirety. It's a very famous document, published in 1798. I've referred to it numerous times in previous episodes of the Corbett Report, 
because it's still 210 years after its first publication, continues to provide justification for the elite who feel that they must control the population in order to create a sustainable society. Yes, those who buy into the green propaganda wholesale might be surprised to think that terms such as sustainability were around 210 years ago, when the chicken littles of the day were proclaiming there would not be enough food to last for another century, let alone two centuries. Again, just a flavor of how this thinking has continued to percolate down through the centuries into the elite of our current age comes from this report from the Schiller Institute at schillerinstitute.org entitled Henry Kissinger's 1974 Plan for Food-Controlled Genocide. It reads in part, quote, On December 10, 1974, the U.S. National Security Council, under Henry Kissinger, completed a classified 200-page study, National Security Study Memorandum 200, Implications of Worldwide Population Growth for U.S. Security and Overseas Interests. The study falsely claimed that population growth in the so-called lesser-developed countries was a grave threat to U.S. national security. Adopted as official policy in November 1975 by President Gerald Ford, NSSM 200 outlined a covert plan to reduce population growth in those countries through birth control and also, implicitly, war and famine. Brent Scowcroft who had by then replaced Kissinger as national security advisor, the same post Scowcroft was to hold in the Bush administration, was put in charge of implementing the plan. CIA Director George Bush was ordered to assist Scowcroft, as were the Secretaries of State, Treasury, Defense, and Agriculture. There were several measures that Kissinger advocated to deal with this alleged threat, most prominently birth control and related population reduction programs. He also warned that population growth rates are likely to increase appreciably before they begin to decline, even if such measures were adopted. A second measure was curtailing food supplies to targeted states, in part to force compliance with birth control policies. There is also some established precedent for taking account of family planning performance in appraisal of assistance requirements by AID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, and consultative groups. Since population growth is a major determinant of increases in food demand, allocation of scarce PL-480 resources should take account of what steps a country is taking in population control as well as food production. In these sensitive relations, however, it is important in style as well as in substance to avoid the appearance of coercion. Mandatory programs may be needed, and we should be considering these possibilities now, the document continued, adding... Would food be considered an instrument of national power? Is the U.S. prepared to accept food rationing to help people who can't slash won't control their population growth? End quote. Again, in addition to that document, which is found on the SchillerInstitute.org, I encourage listeners to check out the special report, Who is Responsible for the World Food Shortage?, which was written on December 8, 1995 in the Executive Intelligence Review, and goes in-depth into the Kissinger NSSM 200 Global Depopulation Starvation Program, and the various ways in which the food cartel, which controls so much of our food supply, was acting even a decade ago to help bring this starvation about. Also, of course, I exhort my listeners to go out and check the source document itself, NSSM 200, which is available in its entirety online. 
But perhaps there are those of you out there who still think this might be a good thing after all, even if it was a concerted effort on the behalf of governments and big business to create the environment for depopulation, which the elite again and again in their writings and speeches so yearn for. Because after all, aren't we hurting the earth by eating food? The impact of everything we do adds up. I got to wondering, what's the carbon impact of something like a cheeseburger? Americans, all 300 million of us, eat an average of three cheeseburgers every week. And so that's like 150 cheeseburgers for each one of us every year. That's billions of cheeseburgers in the United States alone every year. Among the scientists and other experts investigating climate change, Jamey Cassio has staked out a unique territory. I had to be able to calculate the numbers, calculate the actual solid numerical quantitative footprint of a cheeseburger. The carbon footprint means all the energy that was consumed every step of the way for each of a cheeseburger's component parts. When you look at the feedstock that goes to feed the cattle, growing the lettuce, growing the wheat that gets transformed into the bun, and milking the cattle, processing the milk into cheese, processing the cattle into beef, trucking all that stuff around, keeping it cold. It turns out each burger has a pretty significant carbon footprint of its own. And carbon dioxide isn't the only greenhouse gas that's produced in the end. But then it struck me, there's another critical part of the overall greenhouse gas footprint that I wasn't including. Methane. Methane from cattle. Well, the FDA calls it very politely enteric fermentation. It's what comes out of the cow. And methane, as it turns out, is the equivalent of at least 23 units of carbon dioxide. Add it all up, all those cheeseburgers and all that CO2, and you've got a very big number. Pretty close to 200 million metric tons. 200 million metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent just from cheeseburgers in the United States. Casio has calculated that there are even more greenhouse gas emissions every year from cheeseburgers than from all the SUVs in the United States. And this is just one kind of food. Think about all of the enormous variety of things that we purchase, we buy, we consume. And you realize that it's these everyday activities that are really the critical aspect of human activity leading to global warming. Oh my God, what will it take before these people wake up and realize that they're eating hamburgers will cause the release of so much of this deadly hellfire spawned from the very dual head of Cerberus himself, CO2, also known as carbon dioxide. Well, of course, it is true that study after study after study shows that increases in CO2 levels actually lead to increases in the yield of crop after crop after crop, including Valencia oranges, 
potatoes, sorghum, the list goes on and on, that in fact, as Dr. Tim Ball pointed out in a previous appearance on the Corbett Report, that we live in a relatively carbon dioxide starved environment, and that commercial greenhouses pump in over 1,000 parts per million carbon dioxide, which is almost four times the amount currently in the atmosphere, in order to increase the yield of their commercial crops. And certainly people who are looking for the real story about global warming and carbon dioxide should not read The First Global Revolution, a report by the Council of the Club of Rome by Alexander King and Bertrand Schneider. They absolutely should not read that quote from the 1991 edition of that book. In searching for a new enemy to unite us all, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like, would fit the bill. In their totality, and in their interactions, these phenomena constitute a common threat, which as the enemy, we fall into the trap about which we have already warned, namely mistaking symptoms for causes. All these dangers are caused by human intervention, and it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself. End quote. Now, please don't look at quotes like that. Obviously, this global warming hype is absolutely and totally true, that humans are killing the planet by eating burgers. And, of course, now that particular idea is being pumped out through story after story after story in the controlled corporate media, especially focusing on burgers for some reason, perhaps the American national fixation coming into play there. But for a real idea about what the Green Revolution is, how it's connected to agribusiness and the elite depopulation agenda, we turn to some real research from globalresearch.ca. This is from an excellent article entitled Agribusiness Giants Seek to Gain Worldwide Control Over Our Food Supply. It's by Stephen Lendman, and it's a review of the book Seeds of Destruction by William Engdahl. I read here from a section entitled Creating Agribusiness. Rockefeller and Harvard Invent USA Agribusiness. And this reads in part, quote, The Green Revolution began in Mexico and spread across Latin America during the 1950s and 1960s. It was then introduced in Asia, especially in India. It was at a time we claimed our aim was to help the world through free market efficiency. It was all one way, from them to us, so corporate investors could profit. It gave U.S. chemical giants and major grain traders new markets for their products. Agribusiness was going global, and Rockefeller interests were in the vanguard, helping industry globalization take shape. Nelson worked with his brother, J.D. III, who set up his own Agriculture Development Council in 1953. They shared a common goal, cartelization of world agriculture and food supplies under their corporate hegemony. At its heart, it aimed to introduce modern agriculture techniques to increase crop yields under the false claim of wanting to reduce hunger. The same seduction was later used to promote the gene revolution, with Rockefeller interests and the same agribusiness giants backing it. In the 1960s, Lyndon Johnson also used food as a weapon. He wanted recipient nations to agree to administration and Rockefeller preconditions that population control and opening their markets to U.S. industry was part of the deal. It also involved training developing world agriculture scientists and agronomists in the latest production concepts so they could apply them at home. 
This carefully constructed network later proved crucial to the Rockefeller strategy to spread the use of genetically engineered crops around the world, helped along with USAID funding and CIA mischief. Green Revolution tactics were painful and took a devastating toll on peasant farmers. They destroyed their livelihoods and forced them into shantytown slums that now surround large third-world cities. There they provided cheap, exploitable labor from people desperate to survive and easy prey for any way to do it. The revolution also harmed the land. Monoculture displaces diversity, soil fertility and crop yields decrease over time, and indiscriminate use of chemical pesticides causes serious later health problems. Engdahl quoted an analyst calling the Green Revolution a chemical revolution developing states couldn't afford. That began the process of debt enslavement from IMF, World Bank, and private bank loans. Large landowners can afford the latter, small farmers can't, and often, as a result, are bankrupted. That, of course, is the whole idea. The Green Revolution was based on the proliferation of new hybrid seeds in developing markets that characteristically lack reproductive capacity. Declining yields meant farmers had to buy seeds every year from large multinational producers that control their parental seed lines in-house. A handful of company giants held patents on them and used them to lay groundwork for the later GMO revolution. Their scheme was soon evident. Traditional farming had to give way to high-yield varieties of hybrid wheat, corn, and rice with major chemical inputs. The social costs were staggering and continue to be as entire rural communities collapsed and rural towns became ghost towns. Consider the consequences. By 2004, the four largest beef packers controlled 84% of steer and heifer slaughter. Tyson, Cargill, Swift, and National Beef Packing. Four giants controlled 64% of hog production, Smithfield Foods, Tyson, Swift, and Hormel. Three companies controlled 71% of soybean crushing, Cargill, ADM, and Bunge. Three giants controlled 63% of all flour milling, and five companies controlled 90% of global grain trade. Four other companies controlled 89% of the breakfast cereal market. Kellogg, General Mills, Kraft Foods, and Quaker Oats. In 1998, Cargill acquired Continental Grain to control 40% of national grain elevator capacity. Four large agrochemical seeds giants controlled over 75% of the nation's seed corn sales, and 60% of it for soybeans while also having the largest share of the agricultural chemical market, Monsanto, Norvartis, Dow Chemical, and DuPont. Six companies controlled three-fourths of the global pesticides market. Monsanto and DuPont controlled 60% of the U.S. corn and soybean seed market. All of it patented GMO seeds. End quote. Again, I wholeheartedly recommend that my listeners read that article in its entirety. But the question remains, what does this massive consolidation mean? And why is a global food crisis coming into shape? just as their consolidation reaches its peak. Coincidence? Well, let's turn to one of the major players in this global consolidation, the chairman of the board of Bear Crop Science. Bear Crop Science builds itself as one of the leading innovative crop science companies in the area of crop protection, non-agricultural pest control, seeds, and plant biotechnology, with annual sales of about 5.8 billion euros. 
Of course, all of that is euphemism to say that it's a GMO company looking to help expand and consolidate the global food supply under the hands of a few companies who control the genetic patents for life itself. But let's take a look at an article that's found on the Bayer Crop Science homepage at bearcropscience.com, which features comments from Frederick Burschauer, the chairman of the board of Bayer Crop Science. Under the heading, We Should Not Close Our Eyes to the Opportunities Offered by Biotechnology, the article reads, In order to be able to meet the increased demand for agricultural products, it is essential that agricultural production is made more efficient and in a sustainable manner, explained Burschauer. We need a holistic approach, which includes both improving crop rotation, watering technologies, and developing new crop protection solutions and high-yield seeds, because we are all responsible for ensuring that sufficient food is available for the population 50 years from now, he stressed. One thing that could also contribute considerably to increasing productivity, if used responsibly, is plant biotechnology. Burschauer mentioned canola cultivation in Canada as an example, which has shown an increase in yield of up to 30% as a result of plant breeding supported by genetic engineering. Research at Bayer Crop Science is also concerned with plant biotechnology in order to immunize plants against environmental and climate stress. The exclusion of this technology for ideological reasons is not ethically justifiable either. We in Europe must not persist in closing our eyes to the opportunities inherent in genetic engineering, said Burschauer. End quote. Well, it's interesting to note how that direct quote from Mr. Burschauer about genetic engineering, got softened down to that bland phrase biotechnology in the heading of that article. Because, of course, biotechnology sounds so much friendlier than genetic engineering, which we looked at in a previous episode of the Corbett Report, which I commend to my audience on this topic. But regarding Mr. Burschauer's comments, they're demonstrably false. Let's turn to an article from the Center for Food Safety, from February 13, 2008, which came under the headline Genetically Modified GM Crops Increase Pesticide Use and Fail to Alleviate Poverty Reveals New Report. GM Crops Have Not Reduced World Hunger, study concludes. Quote, Genetically modified GM crops have led to a large increase in pesticide use and have failed to increase yield or tackle world hunger and poverty, a new report by Friends of the Earth and Center for Food Safety reveals today. The report coincides with the annual release of biotech industry figures on GM crop cultivation around the world. The biotech industry tells Africans that we need GM crops to tackle the food needs of our population, but the majority of GM crops are used to feed animals in rich countries, to produce damaging agrofuels, and don't even yield more than conventional crops, said Nemo Basse, Friends of the Earth International's GMO coordinator in Nigeria. End quote. That story goes on to list some of the fabrications of the biotech, i.e. genetic modification industry, about their claims of increasing yield and reducing pesticide use through biotechnology. The simple fact is that these are lies, that in fact pesticide use is increasing even as crop yield is decreasing because of these genetically modified plants. Why then are these agribusiness conglomerates which now control such a staggering percentage of the global food supply trying to pump genetically modified crops down people's throats? 
why are they lobbying so hard against any attempt by any legislature to make it mandatory to label genetically modified products? Why can we not even know what we are eating? This is a very fundamental question about the age in which we're living. It's about one of the most fundamental biological functions of human beings, and that is eating. What is the genetically modified food agenda? How does it tie into the Green Revolution? And what does it mean in terms of a food crisis depopulation agenda driven from the very top by the elite who control these agribusinesses? This is not a joke. Of course, Bear Crop Science is nothing less than a subsidiary company of Bear, the famous pharmaceutical company. And Bear demonstrably has ties to IG Farben. In fact, you can even go to the Bear.com homepage and read about their association with the IG Farben Industry AG company, which helped exterminate workers in the Nazi concentration camps. They made the Zyklon B gas, which the Nazis used to exterminate the Jews in the concentration camps. Several members of the IG Farben company were tried in the Nuremberg trials after World War II and were convicted of having played a part in the Holocaust. And Bear.com brags about having been associated with them. Well, what does this mean? Where is it going? Again, for that information, let's turn to a different article, also from globalresearch.ca, this time by William Engdahl himself, entitled Doomsday Seed Vault in the Arctic. Bill Gates, Rockefeller, and the GMO giants know something we don't. It's from December 4th, 2007, and it reads in part, quote, No project is more interesting at the moment than a curious project in one of the world's most remote spots, Svalbard. Bill Gates is investing millions in a seed bank on the Barents Sea near the Arctic Ocean, some 1,100 kilometers from the North Pole. Svalbard is a barren piece of rock claimed by Norway and ceded in 1925 by international treaty. On this godforsaken island, Bill Gates is investing tens of his millions, along with the Rockefeller Foundation, Monsanto Corporation, Syngenta Foundation, and the government of Norway, among others, in what is called the Doomsday Seed Bank. Officially, the project is named the Svalbard Global Seed Vault on the Norwegian island of Spitsbergen, part of the Svalbard Island Group. The seed bank is being built inside a mountain on the Spitsbergen Island near the small village of Longyearbyen. It's almost ready for business, according to their releases. The bank will have dual blast-proof doors with motion sensors, two airlocks, and walls of steel-reinforced concrete one meter thick. It will contain up to three million different varieties of seeds from the entire world so that crop diversity can be conserved for the future according to the Norwegian government. Seeds will be specially wrapped to exclude moisture. There will be no full-time staff, but the vault's relative inaccessibility will facilitate monitoring any possible human activity. Did we miss something here? Their press release stated so that crop diversity can be conserved for the future. What future do the seed bank sponsors foresee that would threaten the global availability of current seeds, almost all of which are already well protected in designated seed banks around the world? Anytime Bill Gates, the Rockefeller Foundation, Monsanto, and Syngenta get together on a common project, it's worth digging a bit deeper behind the rocks on Spitsbergen. When we do, we find some fascinating things.
The first notable point is who is sponsoring the Doomsday Seed Vault. Here joining the Norwegians are, as noted, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the U.S. agribusiness giant DuPont Pioneer Hybrid, one of the world's largest owners of patented genetically modified plant seeds and related agrochemicals, Syngenta, the Swiss-based major GMO seed and agrochemicals company through its Syngenta Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the private group who created the Gene Revolution with over $100 million of seed money since the 1970s, CGIAR, the global network created by the Rockefeller Foundation to promote its ideal of genetic purity through agriculture change. End quote. Continuing, later in the article, this comes under the section Gates, Rockefeller, and a Green Revolution in Africa. Quote, With the true background of the 1950s Rockefeller Foundation Green Revolution clear in mind, it becomes especially curious that the same Rockefeller Foundation along with the Gates Foundation, which are now investing millions of dollars in preserving every seed against a possible doomsday scenario, are also investing millions in a project called the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa. AGRA, as it calls itself, is an alliance again with the same Rockefeller Foundation which created the Gene Revolution. A look at the AGRA Board of Directors confirms this. It includes none other than former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan as chairman. In his acceptance speech in a World Economic Forum event in Cape Town, South Africa in June 2007, Kofi Annan stated, I accept this challenge with gratitude to the Rockefeller Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and all others who support our African campaign. The Rockefeller Foundation has been working for years to promote, largely without success, projects to introduce GMO into the fields of Africa. They have backed research that supports the applicability of GMO cotton in the Makatini Flats in South Africa. Monsanto, who has a strong foothold in South Africa's seed industry, both GMO and hybrid, has conceived of an ingenious smallholders program known as the Seeds of Hope campaign, which is introducing a Green Revolution package to small-scale poor farmers followed, of course, by Monsanto's patented GMO seeds. Syngenta AG of Switzerland, one of the four horsemen of the GMO apocalypse, is pouring millions of dollars into a new greenhouse facility in Nairobi to develop GMO insect-resistant maize. Syngenta is part of CGIAR as well. Now, is it simply philosophical sloppiness? What leads the Gates and Rockefeller Foundations to at one and the same time to back proliferation of patented and soon-to-be Terminator patented seeds across Africa, a process which, as it has in every other place on Earth, destroys the plant seed varieties as monoculture industrialized agribusiness is introduced? At the same time, they invest tens of millions of dollars to preserve every seed variety known in a bomb-proof doomsday vault near the remote Arctic Circle so that crop diversity can be conserved for the future to restate their official release. It is no accident that the Rockefeller and Gates Foundations are teaming up to push a GMO-style green revolution in Africa at the same time they are quietly financing the doomsday seed vault on Svalbard. The GMO agribusiness giants are up to their ears in this Valbard project. Now we come to the heart of the danger and the potential for misuse inherent in the Svalbard project of Bill Gates and the Rockefeller Foundation. Can the development of patented seeds for most of the world's major sustenance crops, such as rice, corn, wheat, and feed grains, such as soybeans, ultimately be used in a horrible form of biological warfare? 
The explicit aim of the eugenics lobby funded by wealthy elite families such as Rockefeller, Carnegie, Harriman, and others since the 1920s has embodied what they termed negative eugenics, the systematic killing off of undesirable bloodlines. Margaret Sanger, a rabid eugenicist, the founder of Planned Parenthood International and an intimate of the Rockefeller family, created something called The Negro Project in 1939, based in Harlem, which, as she confided in a letter to a friend, was all about the fact that, as she put it, we want to exterminate the Negro population. A small California biotech company, Epicyte, in 2001 announced the development of genetically engineered corn, which contained a spermicide, which made the semen of men who ate it sterile. At the time, Epicyte had a joint venture agreement to spread its technology with DuPont and Syngenta, two of the sponsors of the Svalbard Doomsday Seed Vault. Epicyte was since acquired by a North Carolina biotech company. Astonishing to learn was that Epicyte had developed its spermicidal GMO corn with research funds from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the same USDA which despite worldwide opposition, continued to finance the development of Terminator technology now held by Monsanto. In the 1990s, the UN's World Health Organization launched a campaign to vaccinate millions of women in Nicaragua, Mexico, and the Philippines between the ages of 15 and 45, allegedly against tetanus, a sickness arising from such things as stepping on a rusty nail. The vaccine was not given to men or boys, despite the fact they are presumably equally liable to step on rusty nails as women. Because of that curious anomaly, Comité Provida de México, a Roman Catholic lay organization, became suspicious and had vaccine samples tested. The tests revealed that the tetanus vaccine being spread by the WHO only to women of childbearing age contained human chronic gonadotrophin, or HCG, a natural hormone which, when combined with a tetanus toxoid carrier, stimulated antibodies, rendering a woman incapable of maintaining a pregnancy. None of the women vaccinated were told. It later came out that the Rockefeller Foundation, along with the Rockefeller Population Council, the World Bank, home to CGIAR, and the United States National Institute of Health, had been involved in a 20-year-long project begun in 1972 to develop the concealed abortion vaccine with a tetanus carrier for WHO. In addition, the government of Norway, the host of the Svalbard Doomsday Seed Vault, donated $41 million to develop the special abortive tetanus vaccine. Is it a coincidence that these same organizations, from Norway to the Rockefeller Foundation to the World Bank, are also involved in the Svalbard Seed Bank project? According to Professor Francis Boyle, who drafted the Biological Weapons Anti-Terrorism Act of 1989, enacted by the U.S. Congress, the Pentagon is now gearing up to fight and win biological warfare as part of two Bush national strategy directives adopted, he notes, without public knowledge and review in 2002. Boyle adds that in 2001 to 2004 alone, the U.S. federal government spent $14.5 billion for civilian biowarfare-related work, a staggering sum. Many of the U.S. government dollars spent on biowarfare research involved genetic engineering. MIT biology professor Jonathan King says that the growing bioterror programs represent a significant emerging danger to our own population. King adds, while such programs are always called defensive, with biological weapons, 
defensive and offensive programs overlap almost completely. Time will tell whether, God forbid, the Svalbard Doomsday Seed Bank of Bill Gates and the Rockefeller Foundation is part of another final solution, this involving the extinction of the late great planet Earth. End quote. That is a staggering article full of incredibly important information, and I encourage you not just to go out and read that article in its entirety, but to spread that article to as many people as you can. This is the information which is being held back from us by a facade of corporate-controlled media gloss. The connection between these inbred, eugenics-obsessed elite, agribusiness, genetic modification, and the doomsday seed vault is too important to ignore. The only hope that the world has left is in the small farmers who've managed to escape the clutches of the agribusiness industry. That small percentage of global food production which is not under the control of these giant businesses with the eugenics-obsessed elite at the very top. But even that small hope is starting to slip away. Greg Neuendorp raises cattle in northern Michigan, Time in the saddle is one of the best parts of the day for this fifth-generation farmer. But these days, he's spending lots of time holed up in his home office. Why? Neuendorp and other small farmers are fighting the government's plans to identify and track every single farm animal in the country. It's called NAIS, or National Animal Identification System. Our primary interest is protecting the food supply by having a rapid system that can reach out and address the needs for the primary food animals. On October 8th, Michigan ag officials arrived on Greg Neuendorp's farm with a search warrant. The problem, Neuendorp refused to allow the ag officials to put radio frequency identification tags on his cattle. Pressure forced Neuendorp to give in that day, but his story spread rapidly in farming communities, making him the face of a grassroots opposition movement. The tag goes in the air, they give me a premises ID number. Now they got a national number on my cattle. They got a national number on my land. I might still technically own the animal, but they're controlling what I can and can't do with it. While this may be the law in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Indiana, the USDA insists the federal ID program is not mandatory. It can, it will, and it should work on a voluntary basis. Still, privacy experts say many USDA programs like this one for sheep and goat producers in New York, already require an NAIS number. And small farmers like Virginian Scott Wilson worry about the cost of buying tags and tracking animals. Tagging every chicken could put Wilson out of business. To be effective, they're going to need 100% participation in this program. Um, and that is, you know, really, I think, going to put an undue burden on us as, as small farmers. The USDA wants to be able to track animals quickly in the event of a disease outbreak. It believes NAIS will do that and help encourage confidence in the safety of our food supply in the eyes of both consumers and global markets. Like it or not, NAIS is quickly becoming reality. More than one and a half million RFID tags are spread across some 400,000 farms today. The USDA is now accepting bids for another million and a half. And the latest development, implantable devices for livestock. Pets aren't supposed to be part of this program, but activist Barb Haywood is not so sure. 
She and others in the dog world say mandatory pet shipping is already happening in many communities. A microchip is not a benign device. A microchip is a data collection device. A data collection device that's designed to collect data on not just your dog, but you. Mandatory pet shipping is the law in places like Stockton, California and El Paso, Texas. Pet chip companies publicize heartwarming stories about lost animals being reunited with their families. But what about health concerns? Privacy expert Katherine Albrecht wonders how many pet owners know about the cancer studies she recently uncovered. You can see images from the studies here, which show chip implants that caused malignant tumors in lab rats and mice. It may not be such a good idea to force people to microchip their family companions if, if it's possible that there is even a, a slight chance of a, of a cancer link there. Another concern is that animal implants may speed up the growth of the human implant market. That's because Digital Angel, a major manufacturer of animal chips, is owned by the same company that makes the human implant Verichip. Since the FDA approved Verichip in 2004, it set up shop in more than 900 hospitals. Verichip assures patients that in a medical emergency, a simple wave of a scanner could correctly identify them and their medical information. But Verichip is working through health concerns of its own. Susan Byrne received her chip in July and says her arm still hurts. The next day, that's when I really felt discomfort. I felt like I was having an injection 24-7, like the needle was still in my arm. Byrne says Verichip told her that she was the first patient to ask that her chip be removed. But she questions that. Verichip did not respond to our calls on the subject. Critics of the Verichip also worry that human implants will one day be mandatory. There is actually a growing concern that an HMO or an employer could actually require a person to be microchipped to either get insurance or to get uh, to, to keep a job. So far, Wisconsin, North Dakota, and California have all passed laws forbidding the mandatory chipping of people. But for many animals, it may be too late. We're a very small voice right now that is going against the tide, going against this, you know, saying, hey, this doesn't make sense. What makes sense to both sides is safety, but it seems no one can agree at what price. Heather Sells, CBN News. That's right, our old friends Verichip, owned by IBM, who also owns the digital angel form of chipping animals, finds itself implanted in the National Animal Identification System, which is coming into place. And yes, the government is going to start regulating all farms so that even if you have a single chicken, you will have to get it implanted with an ID and tracked by the federal government. This, of course, has nothing to do with food safety, but it has everything to do with creating another lever of control for the federal government to rule, regulate, track, trace, and otherwise subordinate its citizens with the added bonus of getting rid of small farmers who can't afford to track and trace every single animal on their farm, boosting agribusiness profits because, of course, agribusinesses with tens of thousands of animals can buy special immunity from the program, and, of course, it softens up the public psychologically to accept the idea of implantable ID devices. The National Animal Identification System must be resisted as another form of tyranny that can only serve to benefit those at the very top who control so much of the food supply already. 
And it's not only in this realm that the government is exerting its control over the population and making itself known as the tyranny that it really is. This is being exposed in another form of food, and that is food as a medicine. Let's turn to a researcher now that I haven't mentioned before on the Corbett Report, but which I do recommend my listeners check out, and that is Alan Watt. You can find his work at cuttingthroughthematrix.com, and you can also subscribe to his podcast for free, which I wholeheartedly recommend. He's of British extraction, but lives in rural Ontario, and he has a wealth of information and knowledge on the encroaching New World Order. He's very good at documenting his sources, and he, for example, was the researcher from whom I found the work Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars, which was featured in last week's episode. Recently, he's been talking a great deal about the coming food riots and the system, which will come into place soon enough, of a world food agency administered by the UN, which will dole out rations to countries. The rations, of course, gradually decreasing, and thus population control being assured. Let's listen to a clip from a recent episode of his podcast in which he addresses a startlingly tyrannical new bill being introduced by the Canadian government. Now, in Canada, and this is from Natural News, this is the same law that's been passed here as I think they've already passed in Europe. A law basically put out there by the big pharma companies who want to take over all competition. That's the name of the game in supposed free enterprise. You corner a market, you eliminate the competition, and then you own all the beans and the profits, of course. Uh, and they call that good business. But naturalnews.com has an article here on Canada's C-51. Now, be the same one in the States as well. Because as I say, they've done it to Europe, and now we must follow suit. And this is April the 28th, this particular article. Canada's C-51 law may outlaw 60% of natural health products. Big Pharma pushing to criminalize supplements. So there you are, Big Pharma tells you right there, here's a big gang, you see. Big Pharma is pushing to criminalize supplements. Why do they want to criminalize? Is it just to get the, the whole market to themselves? That is definitely one big aspect of it. But the other aspect is, you see, we're all malnourished in the system of intensive farming, where they can modify spuds to look big, but they're soaked in poisons and all the rest of it. And, and, the, and the soil, too, is depleted. They keep using the same soil, and they add all of these artificial chemicals to them for, instead of using manure. So we're all malnourished. We can have, be very overweight. In fact, most overweight people are actually undernourished. Their body's craving things, and they eat as much as they can. They're never satisfied because they're not getting the minerals and vitamins and all the rest of it that you need so here they are going to make us even sicker because a lot of people have been using supplements for years to try and overcome this deficiency in the food they buy. This is here, natural news. A new law being pushed in Canada by Big Pharma seeks to outlaw up to 60% of natural health products currently sold in Canada. 
even while criminalizing parents who give, listen to this, who are criminalized parents who give herbs or supplements to their children. Oh, we're so free, eh? We're so free. <laughs> the law, known as C-51, was introduced by the Canadian Minister of Health on April the 18th, or 8th, April 8th, 2008, and it proposes sweeping changes to Canada's Food and Drugs Act that could have devastating consequences on the health products industry. Among the changes proposed by the bill are radical alteration to key terminology, including replacing the word drug with therapeutic product. Throughout the act, thereby giving the Canadian government broad-reaching powers to regulate the sale of all herbs, vitamins, supplements, and other items. With the single language change, they have to do it. They do it. I've always told people words are so important, so important, because that's what lawyers deal with all the time, the meanings of words. And that's why you generally lose going into court. You think you're saying all the right things, but you have to understand it from this warped legalistic point of view. It says here, uh, reaching the power to regulate itself, all herbs, vitamins, supplements, and other items. With this single language change, anything that is therapeutic automatically falls under the Food and Drug Act. This would include bottled water, blueberries, dandelion greens, and essentially all plant-derived substances. The Act also changes the definition of the word sell to include anyone who gives such therapeutic products to someone else. Isn't that amazing? You see, using this kind of change in terminology, they can make criminals out of all of us for any reason they wish. So even if you give it to someone, it's still called selling. So a mother giving a herb to her child under the proposed new language could be arrested. Oh, another team of childcare workers here, the SWAT teams for childcare, could be arrested for engaging in the sale of unregulated, unapproved therapeutic substances. And it goes on to say, learn more about these freedom squashing changes to law at stop51.com website. And I'll have that on my website. But it's just incredible what they're really doing. And it's just, as I say, the big gang at the top. Underneath this particular article, it says here, new enforcement powers allow Canadian governments to seize your home or business. Well, that's not really that new. There's just new reasons for it. At the same time that C-51 is outlawing herbs, supplements, and vitamins, it would grant alarming new enforcement powers to the enforcement agents. And the guys scrubbed out thugs, which is the guy I left it in personally. Uh, enforcement agents who claim to be protecting the public from dangerous, unapproved therapeutic agents, like, say, dandelion greens. As explained on the www.educateyourself.org website, the C-51 law would allow Canadian government enforcement agents to raid your home or business without a warrant. Oh, we're getting, we're getting more and more democratic all the time. Seize your bank accounts, levy fines up to $5 million, and a jail term up to two years for merely selling a herb. You can confiscate your property, then charge you storage fees. Oh, this is typically, they charge you storage fees for the expense involved in storing all the products they stole from you. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. I keep mentioning the movie Gangs of New York. It's an excellent movie based on truth 
and real events that happened in New York City when various gangs were hammering each other for top dog spot. And at the end of the movie, the two main gangs are squaring off for the final fight, and they get bombarded by the U.S. Navy, this new Navy they just built up for the Civil War, and they bombard them from the ships just off off the coast, and then in comes this big military that they have, this first big organized military who wiped up, mopped up the gangs and stopped all the riots that were happening in New York at the time. And the message was clear. You're all kaput. You're all finished. We're putting the kibosh on this because there's only one gang in town and here it is, it's the federal government, the only one with such organization and money to fund it and support it. That was the message in that movie. Well worth going to see. To continue with this article here, C-51 would even criminalize the simple drying of herbs in your kitchen to be used in a herbal product. That would not be categorized as controlled activity. Oh my goodness, I wonder what it be your washing when you hang on the line. Controlled activity. And anyone caught engaging in such controlled activities would be arrested, fined, and potentially jailed. Other controlled activities include labeling bottles, harvesting plants on a farm, collecting herbs from your backyard, or even testing herbal products on yourself. Yes, virtually every activity involving herbs or supplements would be criminalized. There's more too. C-51 is the Canadian government's final solution, good terminology here, for the health products industry. It's a desperate effort to destroy this industry that's threatening the profits and viability of conventional medicine. Natural medicine works so well and is becoming so widely used that both the Canadian and American governments have decided to nuke the industries by passing new laws that effectively criminalize anyone selling such products. They simply cannot tolerate allowing consumers to have continued access to natural products. I'll be back with more after these messages. What else needs to be said? We're in a quiet war with silent weapons, and food is one of those silent weapons. Know your enemy. It is the mass of humanity against the eugenics-obsessed elite who own the agribusiness companies and control the world's food supply. They're making their final moves to exert total control and implement their genetically modified monstrosities and shove them down our throats while they have their doomsday seed vaults stored away up in the North Arctic. Do your own research and get involved. Get that global research article out to as many people as you can. You are involved in this war whether you like it or not. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett. Join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. Got me fucked up in the stomach where my ribs meet. Starving while I'm watching all these other kids eat. I heard your silent bonus was a Lexus coupe. I'm next in line, down to fight for that extra scoop. A natural entrepreneur, I was born on a job. Trade you half a biscuit for your corn on a cob. Most of y'all that brag about keeping the heat close. Y'all don't got beef, that's just yesterday's meatloaf. Damn, how can I put this delicately? Got some leftovers fronting like a delicacy. If they won't let me eat, I act on my own hunch. Forced once and for all, yo, to pack my own. Lunch. This record been serving kids mystery meats Same damn CD, week 
pushing, no ambition The butter's getting hard and the jello's jiggling The things that you cover with your government cheese The kids that you filling with your industry grease If the cooks care less and seeds will perish Left out for days like peas and carrots Feast from the far beach now on your menu Four food groups, we all essential Invade your regimen with the vitamin gin Put a spork in your mouth with a bite of FM You are now tuned in to FM and gin We ain't never eating at the cafeteria again you swear you hot, I done rock greatest spots Since the days of fish sticks and tater tots Four MCs with cocky flows All your other rappers sounding like sloppy Hi John, you recently wrote the book Famine in the West Do you really believe there's going to be a famine in the West? Unless something is done there definitely will be famine As a farmer I know that the number of people that the earth can feed Has been artificially raised by the massive use of the finite resources Of land, water, oil gas and fertiliser. As these resources become scarce and unreliable, so inevitably will food. Recent price increases for food and energy show that demand is already outstripping supply. Climate change, irrigation water shortages, rising world populations and competition from Asia make the problem much worse. 